Welcome to MACMA's Audience Architect, where we are crafting the future of audience engagement. Our mission, to dive into the intricacies of the ever-evolving media and publishing landscape through the sharp lens of audience and marketing professionals. Each episode will unravel the meaning and perspective on trends that are shaping the industry. Welcome to episode five of the Audience Architect podcast. I'm your host, Bill Levine. As we try to make sense of the headlines in the news and in this run-up to the holiday season that, oh my gosh, closes out 2023, today you'll be treated to a thought-provoking episode of Audience Architect as we delve into a topic that defines the success of content in our digital age, building and nurturing an audience. As we navigate a world where our audience's attention is constantly courted by numerous platforms, understanding the subtle art of audience development is crucial. Today, we explore the foundational elements that remain constant amidst rapid technological evolution, the innovative methods for connecting content with its intended audience, and the emerging trends redefining outreach strategies. Our discussion will encompass practical insights into using personas for a deeper understanding of target demographics, strategies for authentically engaging audiences, and the exciting potential of new channels that are capturing the collective imagination. Furthermore, we'll probe into the unique challenges and rich opportunities presented by younger audiences. How do we balance the immediacy of revenue generation with the foresight required for long-term audience investment? What common pitfalls await those striving to expand their audience base, and how can these be skillfully avoided? From practical tips for those struggling with the audience growth to a glimpse into the future of audience engagement, Today's episode is packed with guidance and reflections that are indispensable in this digital era. So settle in and join us for a journey through the intricacies of digital landscapes, exploring how content and its consumers weave a narrative that shapes the success of media brands today. Let's architect the future. Audience Architect is a content service of MACMA, the Media Audience and Content Marketer Association. Supercharge your career with MACMA's paid membership. Connect with industry experts, thought leaders, and like-minded professionals. Expand your knowledge and stay ahead with networking events, webinars, and conferences. Join MACMA today for unparalleled value and professional growth. Check us out at www.v-macma.org. Thanks, as always, to Lisa Pastilli and the gang at MACMA. So meet Carla Zanoni a seasoned strategist known for revolutionizing audience engagement in the competitive arenas of journalism, as well as digital content. With a career adorned with pivotal roles at TED and the Wall Street Journal, amongst others, Carla stands as a beacon of innovation in audience development. Her tenure at TED marked the inception of their first ever departments in audience development, marketing analytics, creating waves of change with initiatives that garnered around 500 million views. Wow. In just one year, Carla's strategic prowess was further recognized with a People's Choice Webby, a testament to her forward-thinking approach. While at the Wall Street Journal, Carla broke new ground as the inaugural audience and analytics editor, steering global transformation that significantly amplified reader engagement. Her leadership catalyzed a digital renaissance, introducing state-of-the-art storytelling platforms that redefined the WSJ's online presence. Carla's journey is a compelling narrative of how strategic insight merges with innovative action, setting new benchmarks in digital content strategy. Her expertise has not only elevated the platform's 
where she has worked, but also reimagined how content converses with its audience. Today, we're privileged to explore the depths of digital audience engagement with a leader whose work continues to inspire industry-wide evolution. Carla, we are truly honored to welcome you to Audience Architect. Oh, Bill, I'm so excited to be here, and I'm really humbled by that introduction. I I want to say all of those things um, are incredibly exciting to hear them listed like that. I feel like we're talking about a different human, and I so I, I, I accept <laughs> that introduction, and I also want to say it really takes a village. I, I think it takes a city, a, a universe, to be able to do all of the things that you just listed, and it's been a really exciting ride to be able to be a leader in that space. Well, great, Carla. Um, I think all of us share this with you. I met you first at um, New York Magma Day in April and saw your terrific presentation and discussion. And it just made me really want to talk to you in an Audience Architect podcast. So um, why don't we jump right into it? Um, in previous episodes, we've delved deep into the technological realm, discussing everything from the profound implications of AI and publishing to the intricate layers of intent data with Len Roberto and the transformative shifts brought about by Google Analytics 4. This intense focus highlights the industry's rapid evolution, but it brings us to a pivotal question. In this race to adapt and adopt, is there a risk that audience and content marketing professionals are becoming too preoccupied with these complex tools, potentially overshadowing the fundamental principles of audience engagement and content marketing? <laughs> Um, so first, I want to say this is an especially challenging time for for digital news, for digital media outlets. Um, you know, costs are rising. There are changes in the social media ecosystem, and it's just harder to attract new readers. So you know, you just look at the headlines. We've seen things this year. Um, you know, news sites like BuzzFeed News and Vice News shutting down or filing for bankruptcy. I see what's happening in the world, and I and there are real life consequences um, attached to that. With that said, my my work has always been holistic in nature. Um, I've always been focused on bringing data and insights to editorially driven spaces, um, like connecting the dots between content and product and, and finding ways to balance the needs of owned and operated and off-platform, off you know, to be able to grow audience and, and deepen engagement and changing spaces. Data has always been a transformative force in so many ways, um, but the foundational element to me will always be around the content, the messaging, the engagement, the way that we uh, build relationships with audiences. And I have such respect for these advanced technologies. And, and what I mean by respect is these are, are things, you know, insights are brought to me, ways of understanding the behavior and and the motivations of audiences, we, we have these tools that are increasing in in the depth of insights that they can provide and the the ability to target. Um, and and I'm wowed by all of that. But if we're not focused on a true north star vision of who our audience is and what they need as a way to create content or messaging that's brand aligned and rooted in that inte editorial integrity then we will only win short-term and we will miss the long-term goal of building loyalty and high-value habits that keep rewarding us over time. 
So maybe maybe it's a back to basics kind of an approach here. Mm-hmm. But what are some of the fundamentals um, of audience development around this content piece that publishers need need to keep in mind? Actually, bring to the forefront um, in this age of advanced technology that that may in some ways sound counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. Well, I like I'm saying I think that the important thing to remember is that editorial judgment is king in this world. Otherwise, I kind of envision us in this sci-fi nightmare of our own making, um, where we're only serving the audience or communities what the numbers tell us to serve. And we're kind of caught in this feedback loop um, where we really fail to find the opportunities to deliver like new content and new formats that might wind up meeting audience needs in ways that the audience didn't even know. Um, I, because of my background in journalism in particular and working in spaces that where editorial judgment is like the most important core of the work that's done and frankly is the culture that drives things forward. Um, I've worked in a lot of places where there was this great fear that audience data was going to lead publishers on a race to the bottom. The, the data is the tail wagging the dog. You know, it's like, in this case, like data is the tail and uh, the journalists, the newsrooms, content curators, they're all the dog. Um, and all of a sudden, high-minded, really smart people would be like hypnotized and they'd start only programming cats and Kardashians. Um, and I've definitely, we've seen brands go down that path for sure, but I've been really fortunate to work in places that are rooted in that journalistic integrity where that hasn't happened and where it's been understood that a, a key uh, insight is understanding who the audience is, understanding what the brand is and, and what the ethos of that brand is and how to meet those two pieces um, with that integrity. And yet that fear still looms large. Like I am speaking to people in newsrooms and media spaces these days, and there is still this concern that that we are just being, um, that we just are, are trying to, you know, meet the masters of data and, and only build content based around that. Um, I think there are ways to do this where we can, find the opportunities, find spaces to innovate and and to really keep evolving. Um, but it has to be really rooted in those basics that you're talking about. Like what is your audience, who is your audience? What motivates them? What do they need? How are you uniquely positioned to be able to meet that need? And how does that align with who you are as a brand? The, the one last thing that I'll say to that point is, Broadly speaking, unfortunately, I see very few media companies starting with that question about who the audience is. They start with the the last piece that I just mentioned, which is what is the brand? What is the brand? <laughs> what does the brand need to sell? What are we putting out there? And if if companies and brands and publishers were to just pause for a moment and ask that first question, uh, I believe that the process would be smoother and and more successful long term. I'm I'm right with you on that, Carla. Um, I often uh, know that in my world of uh, life sciences, um, even with an established brand of of four decades plus, Mm -hmm. often the audience is referred to as 
one giant glom. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody thinks the same, wants the same, uses the same devices. You know, it's very much through through the filter of the publisher, not not the audience. So to that point, I mean, you've you've witnessed firsthand these these shifts in how content connects with its audience. Um, And I, I don't think it's overused, but one one term that many strategists swear by is development of audience personas. Uh, these detailed representations of the different segments of a target audience. Could you delve into how creating these kinds of personas can enhance content strategy and audience development? And and furthermore, like how do you think this approach has evolved with some of the new digital tools? Yeah, I, I mean, to me, personas are, to your point about this, like this blob of the audience, the audience. I, I'm you know, the amount of times that I've had conversations where I say, well, who's your target audience? Who are you trying to reach? Who are you currently reaching? Who would you like to be reaching, et cetera? And the conversation, frankly, boils down to, well, we want to reach everyone. <laughs> and I'm like, this is a really big world. Like, that's a wonderful thing. And, I, and I've worked for brands, global brands, that a lot of people would argue have the opportunity to reach everyone. But this is not just a, a a scale game and it can't just be a scale game in, in order to really build um, the kinds of relationships that I'm talking about with authenticity, with an understanding of the nuanced needs of that audience, you have to really boil it down to um, some commonalities of a core group and then really think about how then after you're serving the needs of that core group, how do you then perhaps open the aperture so that you can, um, make that content accessible to a broader group that perhaps you didn't even know might be aligned with your brand. And I think the core to being able to do that is it really boils down to listening, right? Um, Which can be done by tracking all sorts of signals through data, obviously. But it truly, it's, it's not just tracking those signals. It's having the Having the, again, that pause and that critical thinking to ask, what are those signals actually telling us? Um, And that's where I think a lot of the editorial judgment that I'm talking about comes into play. Um, So asking yourself, like, what is your target audience talking about? What are they sharing? What's in the zeitgeist? What, you know, let's not just follow fads. Let's actually, we can follow trends. They're longer term. They're, they're reflective of uh, cultural evolution. You know, they, they can be quite meaningful, but we don't want to just kind of listen to these signals and react all over the place and, um, and not have an actual strategy in place. And so like one of the, the most meaningful things that uh, my team has done in the past is, you know, when we have our programming meetings, is we talk about what the team is hearing and seeing online, and not just in their algorithmic bubbles, right, but out in the world. And we use all sorts of different tools. So some examples are uh, Google Trends, social media monitoring tools, uh, content aggregator sites like Reddit, uh, trend analysis tools like BuzzSumo, TikTok's discovery page especially on a phone that's not connected to any other account but your brand's account, is a treasure trove of insights. And you can really start listening to, okay, 
what what is coming up there what how are people communicating what are they talking about what is aligned with your brand um and then you can start tapping into what you have available whether it's creating original content or digging into your archives or or things of that nature um and then obviously like industry newsletters and blogs and and all of these spaces that are aligned with with your audience and of course the news um, you know, like really thinking about what is the need that you're hearing your audience communicate? They're not just broadcasting items to not have, uh, to, to just go out into the ether. They're most of the time really longing for connection and for, and, and a feeling of being understood. And if you as a brand can do that kind of deep listening, which by the way, starts with empathy if you can really tap into that and hear what they need, then you will have a constant source of programming that that you're able to, you know, plug into the calendar. You uh, mentioned this longing for connection. And, you know, I think we all are doing that, but whatever media that we may be accessing, whether it's to um, do our jobs better or uh, take advantage of, um, products and services that we might be interested in as consumers. Uh, that is, I think, an oft overlooked concept mm-hmm. <laughs> as as if if we focus too much on them as just being numbers or the blob. So right. I um you know I want to take a sidestep a little bit because it was occurring to me as you were talking about um you know this deep listening that you know the editorial and content teams of course you know, would be those that are closest, I guess you could say, organically to what's happening in their fields. And often, I will find that conversations with them are very tactical. And I wonder if you have had success in sort of earning a seat at the table that enables them to share the things that they're seeing without them feeling like it's a transactional discussion. Yeah. Um, I can tell you some of my most exciting moments in my career have been around this topic and some of my darkest days. (laughs) So, Mm. um, because at, at the end of the day, we're talking about humans who are really passionate about their work, thank goodness, right? Because I, I've had the the grace of uh, working for places that are, you know, mission-driven, whether it's journalism, whether it's uh, spreading ideas, et cetera. Um, I, I love working in those spaces. But the fear that I was mentioning, you know, uh, earlier about what it means to bring data into these conversations, what it means to... Um, utilize data as a, a, a piece of information to help inform a decision. Um, so first of all, in those spaces, I never actually say data-driven. I always say data-informed. And because one of the most powerful things, particularly in newsrooms, is something called the journalistic gut and I have great respect for that. And, and here's the thing. The, the gut or intuition often gets, um, like, uh, kind of written off as this touchy feely thing. But, 
there's so much uh, science that backs this up. Our guts are mini computers that are constantly taking in, you know, millions of, of uh, data points and processing it. Um, and so that understanding that I came to um, really helped pave the way for those tough conversations um, where I was able to bring to a group, first of all, to come to a group and hear from them what their concerns are. What are their fears about uh, creating content plans or optimizing content? Um, even this word content, by the way, in the, the journalism world is taboo. Um, so I'm using that term to be really broad reaching. Um, you know, it can be a an op-ed, it can be an article, it can be a video with a, a talk, it can be also an interview, et cetera. Um, so I'm using that as a catch-all phrase. But even understanding how that kind of jargon can be received by the audience, mm -hmm. it's all the same kind of optimization that we do with our external audience, understanding how to apply those same rules internally when we're speaking with these audience, with, you know, with internal uh, stakeholders, audiences. Um, so really, you know, like one of the things that I wanted to tell you about is when I first started, um, you know, the, the term audience was really relegated to the corner of the newsroom where like either myself, literally just myself, or a small team would be working on social media content distribution. And tell me where, what, give me a, give me yeah. a location, like where, oh, where sure. would this have been? <laughs> So the, the very first time that I experienced this was um, actually for a, a group of uh, community newspapers called uh, Manhattan Media. They did uh, the West Side Spirit and Our Town newspapers in Manhattan, if anybody remembers that. And uh, that was like at the advent of blogging culture. And uh, I would utilize listservs for reporting I would utilize blogs to get this word out. These were all very print-centric spaces, right? Mm -hmm. And I started understanding that, first of all, there was a way to reach this bigger world. Um, from a reporting standpoint, it, it expanded my sources, right? So this was so exciting to me. Um, but what was interesting was the work there and then the work soon after when I went to DNA Info, which was a, a hyperlocal new startup in New York and then in Chicago. Um, and, and social media really started becoming such a distribution and engagement uh, space for us. Metrics are part of all of that work. You're not just publishing something and, and kind of crossing your fingers and hoping that it's reached the audience. We didn't even, at that point in time, it was just starting to build the understanding of Google Analytics and being able to see like how many people were clicking on your stories. So social media in a way, because of because when you're posting on social media and distributing there, there was um you could just see real time how the content was performing. So it was this incubator for helping people to understand like there is data um integrated in the work we're doing here. And it's it's a signal of whether or not we're being successful in our in our jobs. Um, and so, you know, at the beginning, that was really relegated into this corner. 
and and seen as like oh those are the 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 weird kids in the <laughs> the corner there <laughs> but often people are like oh those are the young kids i'm here to tell you you know millennials are turning 40 this year like this was not the work of of quote unquote just young people like this is this has evolved in many ways that's a whole other discussion for us yes. to have. but that'll be that'll uh, be episode 32 excellent <laughs> <laughs> um but so so this focus on metrics really became a bridge of sorts for for people in the newsroom to learn about how their content was performing and who it was reaching um and most importantly at that time who was reading this was you know before the infamous pivot to video um and this was a revelation for many, and it, it wasn't always a comfortable one, and it continues to be an evolution. Um, but I, I think the most important thing that I can impart there is that having an understanding of the fear that that has come from um, a space where in the past, like you cross the finish line, but just file, filing your story, you know, like I, I reported on this, or I wrote this, my editor okayed it, it, we hit publish and it's done. It's a lot like having a baby, like the, the, the nine, 10 months is just the beginning. The birth is like, now you're off to the races. And I had to really help um, a lot of editorially focused people understand that this is a marathon, not a race. And um, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And there's a lot of help that this these insights can provide you to make it more successful and help you reach the people whose lives you're really trying to impact. So, um, you know, you talked um, about some of these intense signals that um, Google Analytics and some of these other platforms allowed you know, the editorial teams and you and the business to start understanding uh, the kind of reaction to the content. Again, broadly speaking, we got to come up with a better term for that, it seems. <laughs> Just a little bit transactional. Um, <clears throat> are delivering. Um, so I'm going to get a little crunchy granola, mm -hmm. given that, though. So, you know, in this age where analytics can dictate content strategies. How do you maintain the, the balance between data-driven decisions and creative intuitions? C and can you share an instance where this balance might have significantly influenced an outcome? Mm -hmm. um, so I'll, I'll take, I have two examples that come to mind. Um, the first one, I'm gonna take you back a little bit. I don't know if you remember the, the internet phenomenon. Uh, that took place around the dress, whether people were able to see, I think it was gold and white or blue and black. Oh, right? yeah. Everybody was showing in their offices. <laughs> Everybody, right? And then a few years later, it became like, are dogs wearing pants on their forelegs on the lower half of their body or on the rear? <laughs> like, I, I love science like this, right? And um, and that was the the thing. So I'm I'm working at the Wall Street Journal. This phenomenon is happening. My social media editors are like, "Oh my god, the internet is blowing up around this." And the first instinct was, "This is not a Wall Street Journal story." And that was amongst my my team, right? My team of innovators and social media consumers, ex quote unquote, extremely online people, right? And what was so fascinating with that was 
actually, there's a lot of science to why we're discussing whether or not you see those color, those two different color patterns. Um, and we had this incredible science um, bureau. Um, and we were able to say, hey, there's this conversation that's happening. And yes, it probably will come and go, but it really does speak to something much bigger. And our audience is wondering, like, why is this a thing? And so we had very serious <laughs> science journalists break down why this is a thing. And, and in some way, that's actually like service journalism, right? They were able mm -hmm. to provide the audience with an answer of why this is happening. So a really interesting insight that um, I've gleaned from, from several different studies is audiences in general, and some more conservative, and I don't mean politically, but more uh, conservative uh, thinking audiences, they tend to not want to ask a question for fear that they may uh, appear dumb or not intelligent. But what they love is for someone to give them information that help that answers the question that they don't want to ask and that helps them feel smarter. So in providing that service in that way, it wound up being one of the highest performing stories of the year. And so, um, you know, there are business traffic implications to having made that decision. Um, the other thing that I wanted to mention is it's again has to do with science. When my team was launching TED Talks, the uh, TikTok account, TED Talks always makes me laugh very much. Mm -hmm. um, they, you know, there was this belief or or concern that perhaps the only thing that would work on that platform was um, stuff, you know, kind of stuff that wasn't truly ideas focused, that was trendier, that was more, um, you know, simple, very simplified. And what we actually found was that there were incredibly deep niche communities, which a lot of people are talking about now, understanding how that's shifted, niche communities that were really interested in science and understanding how science actually works. So we found that uh, having that understanding of what kind of content would reach different audiences in that space and experimenting and doing testing and, and really being able to um, test our beliefs and make sure that we weren't just making assumptions about, uh, especially in this example, like a younger audience, whether or not they, frankly, are they smart enough to understand the ideas that are being delivered by our brand? Like, they're really smart young people, and they're really smart older people, and everything in between. We'll be right back. This winter season, an event not just to celebrate, to inspire, awaits your presence. Introducing the MACMA 2023 Holiday Extravaganza Networking Party. Brought to life by the Media Audience Content Marketing Association, or MACMA, and co-sponsored by FIP, this exclusive gathering is slated for November 30th. Our value is a testament to innovation and architectural grace, the Hearst Tower in New York City. Our day begins with a unique morning segment, the FIP New York City Insider Event at 9.30 a.m., designed for those eager to get a head start. Why should you consider attending? 
Imagine an environment where industry frontrunners and dedicated professionals for media publishing, marketing, and content creation converge. It's a rare chance for insightful dialogue, learning from contemporaries, and of course, expanding your professional network. Okay, what are the particulars? The date, November 30th. Location, Hearst Tower, New York City. Kickoff, 5th New York City Insider Event starting at 9.30 a.m., followed by the MACMA Holiday Extravaganza with registration beginning at 12 p.m. For MACMA members, we offer a preferential rate of $225, encompassing full access to the day's events. Non-members are warmly welcomed with a $300 pass, granting complete access to the day's proceedings in MACMA membership through December 2024. Joining us is straightforward. For the FIP New York City Insider segment, registration is available on the FIP website. For full event participation, navigate to the MACMA 2023 Holiday Extravaganza official landing page. As the year draws to a close, it's more than just a celebration. It's a stepping stone into the future of collaborative success and industry innovation. We look forward to the collective wisdom and shared experiences that this event promises. On behalf of MACMA and FIP, we're excited for the opportunity to connect and enrich our professional tapestry together. You can register for the MACMA 2023 Holiday Extravaganza by hitting up the MACMA website. Where else? At www.the-macma.org and prepare for a day of insightful engagement. Back to our show. I, I, I think that uh, you couldn't have hit on a better segue for... Uh, you know, one of the niche markets um, that both of us, um, I think, relish uh, thinking about and reaching, which, again, are younger audiences. And I guess maybe they're characterized fairly or unfairly by their shifting loyalty and diverse content consumption habits. So how can publishers and event companies anticipate and adapt to these shifts to maintain engagement and relevance, right? Mm -hmm. Because email is not a thing anymore, right? <laughs> right. I actually had uh, someone who I hope will listen to this, this episode, um, who used to be on my team, and I just couldn't reach this person on email. <laughs> it was like, please only slack me, please, I'd, I'd rather a text message. Like, what? <laughs> not, not that many years between us, but a, a real difference in uh, digital behaviors and and uh, and also culture, right? Polite culture. How do we communicate in a in a business setting, et cetera? Um, I've learned so much from managing uh, these kinds of burgeoning, uh, incredibly talented um, leaders who you know people who will clearly be my boss in in just a few years. Um, <laughs> and it reminds me of that. I don't know if it's progressive or Geico television commercial, which is oh, training yes. on how not to become your parents. <laughs> <laughs> which I love. And, and um, here, here's the thing. I, I think that this shift, so, so a lot of my work is all, always about seeing insights. And sometimes those insights can deliver what feels like negative news, right? Uh, shifting loyalty. They're, they're, they're not, uh, they're not going to stick with you. They're just interested in following trends, et cetera. Um, so what I have tried to train myself on when I hear things like that is, is there a way to think about this in the opposite way? So 
is there an opportunity here? Mm-hmm. And what I have come down to is I actually think there's a huge opportunity here. So young people today, and what and well, I'll say one thing to so young people today are not just following in the footsteps of their parents or older generations, right? Who used to dictate like, this newspaper is our family newspaper, or we are only, you know, we only read Time Magazine. I'm really dating myself, but right. Or we're only a uh, New York Post family versus the Daily News, right? right. Those th- Those days are gone. There's just as there isn't unity on what, our cultures are all watching. We're not watching three channels anymore. We're watching a multitude of, of different platforms. And I think there's huge opportunity there. What I think is incredibly important is as we talk about young people, it's how do you not patronize that group, <laughs> right? How, how because do they know it? it. Yes, they know it. They're, they're, I, I mean, they know it immediately. These are people who are incredibly savvy. They have been um, raised in digital-only spaces. They have been raised understanding marketing, understanding brand development. They have a sophistication that whether they wanted it or not, because there's an entire discussion happening right now about whether um, – you know, Farah Bostic is is an amazing uh, audience researcher, and uh, she was actually just talking about this idea that these aud- these younger groups of people maybe we shouldn't be calling them digital natives. Maybe we should be calling them, um, you know, that that they've kind of been captured in this digital space. They didn't really have a choice. This is what they're growing up with. I think having an understanding that this is an incredibly sophisticated generation and having an understanding of perhaps some of the digital behaviors and cultural shifts that are coming with this generation paired with an understanding of what life stage they're living at this moment in time. Because the truth is, as somebody Gen X myself, if I had been only pigeonholed into being this like lazy, shiftless, uh, you know, slacker kind of picture uh, when I was in my 20s. You know, how limiting is that? And how, frankly, dehumanizing is it to think that that's just what people are for the rest of their lives because they happen to be born within a, a time span of a decade or so? So I'll get off my my soapbox around that, but... Um, I genuinely believe that there's a really big opportunity here and brands that are able to adapt and, again, listen to their audience and understand are going to be able to ride that wave and build loyalty that lasts across the course of of their life stages. Well, you uh, mentioned TED Talk Talk before, but speaking of TikTok, um, I... I think we should cover that a little bit. It's emerged, obviously, as as a ginormous, powerful platform for content distribution, especially, again, among the younger demographics. But that, that too, will change. That's the way Facebook started. And now the average age is over 40. Um, and you, you know, again, you've 
you've based on your experience, what unique considerations should content creators keep in mind when leveraging a new platform like this and not falling into just following the trends and um, and catering to the lowest common denominator? Yeah. So, so definitely to the point that you were making about TikTok and, and platforms like this. I mean, my, my mother is like my case study of one, but I can <laughs> tell you my mother is on TikTok far more than I am and, and kind of far more than most younger people I know. I think that's something really interesting to watch. Um, and I think there are a lot of reasons for that, but, um, I'll let the, the social scientists, <laughs> you know, discuss that. But I think one of the most important things, and I learned this both with launching um, Snapchat at the Wall Street Journal and then launching TED Talks um, uh, at TED, uh, at the Wall Street Journal, when we launched Snap uh, Snapchat on Discover, um, you know, it was the, the first national newspaper to launch on that platform. Um, and it was an, an, an unusual uh, announcement, right? The Wall Street Journal on Snapchat. At that point, it was 2016, early 2016. Um, and it, a lot of people were kind of scratching their head. And what was interesting about that experience, and it's very similar to the TED Talk experience, what was really important was being able to experiment and find um, the right expression of the brand on that platform. And some of that, um, although you definitely want to be thinking about how to fund the work on these platforms, because oftentimes it can be quite expensive. It is a content creation team. It's not just, quote unquote, just a social media distribution team. These are two very different skill sets. And over time, those skill sets have started coming closer together. Um, but at the time for both of these um, platform launches, they didn't exist. So I think allowing your team to experiment before you immediately try to monetize is really important. Um, partially because you don't want, you have all of these signals coming in and you want to make sure that you're focusing on creating content that is truly serving the audience in an authentic way where their engagement is the most important signal you're listening to. If you start complicating it with this moment of experimentation with a discussion about monetization, it can be really complicated. And I know I sound like a Pollyanna talking about this. I understand the incredible challenges inherent in, in funding this kind of work. But I, I think it's a really important space to be able to protect, um, if possible, a soft launch or, or some... Um, not never-ending experimental phase, but it, it's really important to have that. And so with, with TED Talk, we actually had that soft launch. We did three months um, where we were just experimenting. We were doing a lot of listening. It was a very, very small team or, or fragments of my team's time re-devoted uh, uh, um, to, to working on TikTok. And it was really interesting. Like we launched, um, we had a, a talk with Lizzo um, and that was actually the 
this is ironic, but our soft launch was actually started by launching a Lizzo talk on the platform, um, which yielded huge, huge results. Mm. And what I think was fascinating was we started actually understanding what does virality actually mean on this platform? For so many of us, we're chasing virality all the time. We're chasing scale all the time. And although it felt really good to launch that way and to have um, that big reach and that that did serve the the ideas that were presented in that talk, that didn't necessarily lead to continued growth. So it's like this spike, but it's not sustainable continued growth. And, and that was a really important insight for me. It wasn't like the algorithm gods were just going to continue <laughs> rewarding the TED Talk account because we had one viral spike. It was like, okay, what are you doing every single day to that is sustainable to build a relationship with your audience so that they're deeply engaged with you? And frankly, um, so that they start amplifying you. And then you're in a, a true... Um, back and forth relationship with that audience. And that's key no matter the platform. You know, I'm talking a lot about social media, but this is the case on uh, owned and operated as well. It's the case for podcasts. It's the case for all of these different distribution channels and, and different formats. How are you building that relationship so that it, it, tru it truly becomes a, a virtuous cycle and, and that engaged and loyal audience starts to amplify you. And that, that's the key factor with organic growth. That experimentation that you're talking about um, is really interesting because as a person with a business leadership role, I often struggle to convince fellow leaders to let a new concept gestate mm -hmm. and not force an immediate budget expectation on it that if it goes awry could be translated as failure mm -hmm. and then an abandonment of something that could could truly lead to that kind of revenue but without establishing what works and doesn't work and refining and optimizing We'll never get there. So that's a cautionary tale for all of us out there right now, because mm -hmm. we do have those pressures and we'd like to think that it, there is instant nirvana, but you mentioned <laughs> earlier in the conversation, Buzzfeed and the like, and you know, the ale, uh, the era of just pure scale. And as you're saying, like, you know, one peak followed by a decline and not a slow, steady build is just not sustainable. And I think that's what the future is going to look fo forward with, um, which leads me to, you know, to say that, yeah, the challenge of monetizing digital content while maintaining audience trust is significant. So um, what are some of the ethical and innovative revenue models you've encountered or employed that respect that audience engagement, not exploit it? Yeah. Um, so I think about... Uh this interview series that um, my team worked on in partnership with our um, our partner marketing team. Um, and 
this was at, at TED, and it this was sponsored content that is, uh, you know, underwritten by a brand um, with very, very clear editorial guidelines and and a wall that's quite similar to what you might have in a newsroom that doesn't exist for for many brands. Um, and we were extremely clear on what kind of input could be fed into um, this kind of work. So, for example, working with a, a major brand, we might say, okay, we want to do a series on um, burnout in the workplace. This was a series that we did uh, after the first year of COVID. And there was an understanding that we, we had found a brand that was aligned with this topic. They understood that we would curate, we would program, we would uh, run the interviews, we would do all of the work. Um, and, and frankly, they had enough trust in our brand and understanding of who we are and, and how um, respecting that trust that we have with our audience and and giving us the space to be able to do this work without um, trying to guide the editorial vision. That was incredibly important. That series um, wound up moving into, you know, becoming several series um, of different topics, positive from a revenue standpoint, brand new social media monetization opportunities. Um, and last this year rather uh the brand actually became the number one most engaged with brand on linkedin uh, you know and and we haven't talked about linkedin it's i'm sure everybody here knows it's just blowing up in so many ways and um the engagement is so much higher there people are really coming to this space looking for um, what I've always said is like a little bit of a performative space. So it keeps the trolls away somewhat. Mm -hmm. I've seen things, but <laughs> humans will be occasionally humans, they show right? up in the every once in a while. I'm like, wow, mm. you, you didn't think your boss would see that, but, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> um, but it, it's, uh, so I, I, I mentioned that to say, you know, that kind of experimentation and that ability to find something that was really aligned with other brands. Um, who wanted to partner with us, that's aligned with our editorial vision, that's bringing information out uh, to the public that's really helpful. All of those things lead up to um, success across multiple metrics. Um, one, one other thing to just mention is um, that model actually helped uh, create an entire suite of programming around uh, topical, timely topics that were important to be able to address for the public. So particularly in 2020, uh, we had done a, a series of um, LinkedIn Lives like this, and, and we distributed on, on different platforms as well, answering questions about COVID, answering questions about, um, you know, public health in general, and, and really acting as a service. So the reason I'm mentioning that is the success with ethical and innovative 
work like what I'm describing in the beginning, paired with being able to provide a service, because this is all in one ecosystem, is um, there's a partnership there, and it's it's beneficial to all, revenue side and editorial side. Well, rather than try to wrap this interview, which I've greatly enjoyed, and I think you know the membership and audience at large will find quite useful, with what are the three things that you see in the future of audience <laughs> engagement? Blah. Instead, you can imagine that some people might be listening to this on their way to work. Um, they could be listening to this on the treadmill. They could be sitting in their office, you know, chomping down a sandwich, not taking any other time for lunch and going, I guess I should, you know, just pick up some knowledge on the fly here. <laughs> but if you were to imagine them taking just a, a, a step back for a moment to reflect um, and not just, you know, like hit the task list, maybe for another eight minutes at least, <laughs> what, what would you have them think about? Hmm. Well, you, you said earlier that you were going to get a little crunchy, so I'll, I'll get a little crunchy here. Um, because you're right, I could talk to you about AI, I could talk to you about decentralization, I could talk to you about how I believe that the open web is maybe, uh, I don't know, we'll see DOA, like I'm not sure what social media is going to become. I could talk about all of those things. But what I think is actually most important is how are you building trust with the teams that you directly manage and that you are asking to innovate? And that can be your more specific small team. It can be if you're the CEO or or C-suite, you're looking at setting um, you know, the, the cultural norms for an organization. The most important thing that I have ever done in my career, no matter where I have been, is focusing on building trust, helping teams become comfortable you know, with sharing new ideas, with experimentation, with giving and receiving feedback, with innovating, empowering those voices. And those could be new voices, right? Mm -hmm. We talked about young people. Um, it could be marginalized voices. It could be people who are, frankly, a little bit burnt out and tired of giving ideas and, and not being heard. How can you build a community, a space of trust within your businesses, um, to really help them feel secure in bringing those ideas forward. Because when you're able to do that, they're able to evangelize. They're able to bring the excitement and the, the sense of experimentation into everything they're doing. And then if they're really smart, they back that exciting work up by showing the results and bringing people along. And then all of a sudden you see this incredible like explosion, um, you know, of exp exponential growth because people are motivated by those kinds of spaces and they feel energized and they, they feel uh, fulfilled. And in this moment in time where we're like struggling with return to office and like all of these kinds of things and the world is what it is, like building, fostering that kind of trust can blossom into all sorts of incredible um, success metrics. <laughs> and that can be revenue, it can be, uh, traffic, it could be engagement, it could be all of the things that we've talked about, but it really comes down to that. Well, I think you know that that answer I love, 
and that I try to propagate in my sphere. Um, and I encourage everybody to do the same. So, Carla, we like to explore the different dimensions of our guests. And on your personal website, carlazanoni.com, you say, my best friend has often said, I need a Sherpa to navigate the different parts of my personality, part poet and witch, part journalist and skeptic. I rely on emotion to get to the truth in my writing and use data to set the digital media strategy. My mantra is data, not drama when at work, and drama, not data, when I sit down to write. Can you share more about this passion for reporting and writing and how it's intertwined or or not with your personal work history? Yeah. Um, I think it goes back to the thing that I was saying earlier about uh, journalistic gut, right? Um, there are so many different inputs in our lives, and I think it's incredibly important to... Um, take a holistic approach to uh, how we're implying different wisdom that we glean over the years. And the only way to do that where it's not like this fire hose, because there's so much more information, there's we're all oversaturated, is to be really intentional about how we're applying those insights. So in, at work, a lot of what I just spoke to you about is about saying, okay, here are data points that are pointing us in one direction and they're very interesting. How do we pause and take a step back and apply um, a little more abstract thinking um, to, to really uh, drive strategy? And then in my personal life, I'm, I'm a creative writer. I, I just published a book of poetry earlier this summer. I'm writing a, a personal memoir, um, all of that is like really driven by gut, really driven by emotion, all of those things. And sometimes I have to say, okay, that's that's wonderful and cathartic and, mm -hmm. and a beautiful expression, but like how can I actually apply some of the insights that I have from my, my work life? And lo and behold, the audience engagement person who you've been speaking to <laughs> for the past hour um, I had been writing and writing and writing for years and I had never stopped and asked myself, who is the audience? <laughs> right? So um, I share that in vulnerability to say we are, we are capable of all of these um, false, you know, these missteps. Um, and I have found that my life is much richer when I'm able to apply these different spheres, hemispheres of my brain, um, and my body and, and my, my way in the world, um, to really find the, the best path forward. Well, um, integrating myself has been a really key part of my evolution, you know, from my personal and business and spiritual spheres. So I relate very much to, it, and I think that magic can really the magic that can result from that is incredible. Um, yeah. So power to you. Um, and I I really thank you for, for taking the time to chat, especially on this angle of the subject, which is so sort of counterintuitive to all of the AI tech stuff, which <laughs> is awesome. That's being discussed or feared <laughs> or, you know, taken advantage of or opportunities today. So um, if someone would like to get in touch with you, um, how would you prefer they do so? 
Sure. So my my website is carlazanoni.com. My email is carlazanoni at gmail.com. Um, and please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Send me a note and let me know that you found me through this amazing podcast. And, and let's see uh, how we can collaborate. I would love to do that. Carl, thank you. Thank you. This was just such a pleasure and, and um, such a gift to your audience. Audience Architect is a content service of MACMA, the Media Audience and Content Marketer Association. Supercharge your career with MACMA's paid membership. Connect with industry experts, thought leaders, and like-minded professionals. Expand your knowledge and stay ahead with networking events, webinars, and conferences. Join MACMA today for unparalleled value and professional growth. Check us out at www.v-macma.org. Thanks as always to Lisa Pistilli and the gang at MACMA.